if, if you don't mind this morning, if everyone would just stand back on your feet just for a moment, and if you would hold the hand of the person standing next to you as we go to the Lord together, giving thanks and giving him praise, and honor and glory for all that he's done in our lives. If somebody would just shout an amen if God has been good to you. Amen, amen, amen. God has been just wonderful to you. And the good, good is one level, but if he's been wonderful to you, somebody shout praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And someone, if, if God has just been absolutely mind-boggling to you, just shout whatever you want to shout. If, if, that's, if that's how God has been in your life. My grandmother used to say, when I think of the goodness of Jesus and all that he's done for me, my soul shouts out, hallelujah. That's how I feel this morning. I, I kind of feel like shouting this morning just because of how good God has been. Amen. And you're holding the hand of somebody that God has been good to. Amen. And you ought to be able to thank God for the goodness in the other person's life. That the person whose hand you're holding has been blessed. You're holding a blessed hand. That ought to give you some joy this morning. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you because from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, your name is worthy to be praised. And God, it's not just for the spectacular and for the uh, awesome things and for the unique things that we thank you for, but today we thank you for God, those seemingly small things, for the breath that we have and for the blood in our veins and for the food that we eat, for the clothes on our back, God, we thank you. God, thank you for every good and perfect gift that you have given to us. And so today, Lord, we pause just to give you all the praise and honor and the glory and to say to you publicly, if it had not been for the Lord on our side, where would we be? And so God, thank you for watching over us. Thank you for protecting us. We've been driving this week on these very dangerous highways on 95 and 75 and 826 and 836 and the Turnpike and 441. But God, you watched over us and God, you kept us. And then God, not only were we driving, some of us were texting and driving. And God, you still spared us. And so Lord, we thank you for your mercy because sometimes we didn't even see it coming. But you place your angels of protections and station them, oh God, so that no danger or harm or hurt would come to us. Thank you for watching over our families and thank you for keeping our children. And God, thank you for the great love that you have for us. And so as we gather here in this place of worship today, we ask God that you would receive and honor the praises of your people. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And all the people of God say amen. Just clap your hands if you will. Give God the praise today. Be seated. Just a couple of things before I share the word with you today. First of all, I'm glad to be back. And I thank God for um, you as a congregation and for all the teams that, you know, participated in my pastoral anniversary because on this past weekend, I uh, was in Atlanta for the Final Four, and that was one of the gifts that I received, and I want to thank you for it. Amen. 
because the final game, in my opinion, was one of the best live events that I've ever been to in my life. It was an exciting game, and the only thing could have made it better if I could have seen a little blue and white, you know, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but that didn't happen. But I had a great time, and I want to thank you for it. And I also want to thank Pastor Taylor for his leadership and for preaching for us on last week. And, you, you know, um, I, I know my mom used to tell me, and I used to hear it coming up, that persons would say, all good things must come to an end. And, you know, it's going to be a, a, a bittersweet experience when Pastor Taylor goes to Dallas. You know, he's such a wonderful part of our ministry, and he, he plays such a powerful role. And so, Pastor Taylor, um, I thank you and thank God for all of your gifts and everything you do here to make our ministry stronger and make our ministry better, and it, and it has gotten stronger, and it has gotten better with you being here, and we are grateful for that, and so uh, thank God for you and for your, your presence. I do want to um, just make sure, if you're not aware, we want to uh, share this morning that Pastor Kenny Harris is no longer with us as the uh, leader of our hydro ministry, and we are, you know, praying for him and his family that um, the best for them as they um, decide what it is their next step is going to be. So we ask you to be in prayer and be in prayer for our church and for our ministry. And the Hydro team met on yesterday, and they are um, uh, excited, and they are developing their next step plans, which you'll see around June 1st, uh, more of what they're planning to do for the remainder of this year. So we wanted everyone to be aware of that if you had not been apprised or informed. And I want you to mark your calendar for one thing also, because on this coming Saturday, it's going to be a relay for life. And then we're going out to um, the park here in Miami Gardens on 27th Avenue, and there's a wonderful track there. And we're going to be marching and walking for cancer uh, relief. And we've asked everybody who can walk, amen, if you can come and to be a part of the Relay for Life. We want to be the most present uh, organization in our community at the Relay for, for Life. Thank you for your money that you gave towards cancer relief. I think we're giving close to $2,000 on that day to um, the organization, which is a wonderful gift. Amen. We thank God for that. So we want you to come out and we want you to be present. Wear your fountain t-shirts. Uh, you know, let people know where you're from. But you have a 24-hour window of time. There are persons that will be in the lobby that will help you sign up. And so um, uh, that's Saturday on the 19th of April. We look forward to seeing you there. Amen. Amen. So today's message uh, from, is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21. Uh, we'll begin reading, and we'll read verse 21 and verse 22 this morning. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're in this series uh, entitled Resurrection. And so uh, it, it reads like this, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So today's message is entitled Corrective Measures. <laughs> 42. The Jackie Robinson story opened this weekend across the nation. Wonderful, wonderful uh, biographical uh, cinema. And uh, Major League Baseball was founded in the 1860s, and it wasn't until 1947 
that Jackie Robinson became the first African-American to play uh, in Major League Baseball. And some, uh, many of you are probably too young to, to, to remember some of, the, some of this, but baseball actually used to be the most popular sport amongst African-Americans in the United States. And some of the America's first sports heroes were people like Roy Campanella and Willie Mays and Hank Aaron. And the signing of Jackie Robinson in 1947 wasn't as great as it was a corrective thing. It should have been um, all the time that African Americans were allowed to participate, but his signing was a correction to a grievous wrong and to the injustice uh, in professional sports. Um, we're watching um, Tiger Woods uh, this week, and this, he's playing in the Masters, and um, he's in uh, competition for his next green jacket. He's pretty close today, so we'll see what happens. But Augusta National, which is the premier uh, golf uh, uh, club, we would say, in America, has a long history of discrimination. As it is touted for its immaculate courses, its beautiful scenery, its wonderful, wonderful customer service, but it has a long history of discrimination, and it's just, it's just been within the last eight months that the first female members were added to uh, membership to the Augusta National Golf Club, and currently there are only uh, there are four African-American men, one white female, and one black female who are members of Augusta National, and so any type of anti-discrimination policy or diversity policy would be much needed, but it would be a corrective measure. You know, there's a fool who is the leader of the country of North Korea. He's young, but he's crazy. And he talks a lot of trash. He talks a lot of trash about nuking the United States. And, um, and I would say if elections were possible, Voting him out, removing him from office, would be a much-needed corrective measure. And all of us, most of us here, have lived long enough, no matter how old you are, you know, there, there are some things that are wrong that you cannot allow to persist. In other, in other words, there comes a point that when that something that is wrong, something has to be done and something has to change. And Paul, in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, is taking corrective measures uh, within the Corinthian congregation, for there was this ongoing conversation about some of them who did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. And in his discussion, Paul gives the church a refresher course on what it means to be in a right relationship with God. And he says this, he says, well, you know that as in Adam, all die. Even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. And so what he's trying to say to us is that Adam and Jesus represent two distinct paths. One road leads to death and the other road leads to life. And with every choice that we make, somebody say every choice. We are choosing either to die 
or we are choosing to live. And Paul is making it clear that Adam's decision to disobey God is a death sentence. And disobedience is not isolated to Adam in the Garden of Eden. In other words, we can't blame Adam for our own disobedience. It would be rather comfortable and convenient to say that the reason I am like I am is because Adam did what he did. But the reason I am like I am is because I did what I did. Somebody say amen. I, I, I did what I did. In other words, disobedience is a universal condition. And rather than blame Adam for the mess we are in, each of us can relate and identify with what Adam chose to do. Now, God gave Adam freedom to eat from every tree in the garden except one. And after listening to a conversation uh, between Eve and the serpent uh, about the fruit, and after seeing Eve eat the fruit with no apparent side effects, Adam was deduced into believing that disobedience was not as destructive as he was told. And so he concluded that the warnings were exaggerations. You've heard that from your children before. What's the big deal? And so he ate the fruit. And you know what? We do the same thing. We are warned. We see other people do it. We don't see any apparent side effects. And so we deduce that there's uh, nothing really uh, so wrong with disobedience. But the penalty of Adam's disobedience was death. And everyone who follows his example dies. And this is what Paul means when he says, as in Adam, all die, but in Christ, all shall be made alive. And for your worksheets, um, the, the first Adam chose to sin. And the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ, chose to serve and to be obedient. You see, let me define sin for us today. Sin is a rejection of what God requests. Sin is high stakes target practice where we miss the mark. Sometimes we miss it intentionally and sometimes unintentionally. But every time we miss it, every time we fail to do what God wants us to do, it is costly. Sin is deciding to take a detour from obedience and to roll the dice on defiance. Sin breaks our relationship with God. And here's the thing. Once we break it, we cannot fix it. I just returned from the Final Four, and again, I want to thank you for it. I had a great time ever in Atlanta. Go uh, take a little, about a five or ten-mile drive on Camp Creek Parkway away from um, the airport, and you'll find a little place on the left, a little restaurant, a little soul food restaurant called This Is It. And so if you want some good soul food while you're in Atlanta, go to This Is It. Well, we're not talking about This Is It today, but while I was in Atlanta, Um, Before I left, my wife um, had had dropped her cell phone and had broken the screen on her cell phone. And the screen had been broken for quite some time. But while I was gone, uh, because uh, Lorraine nor I nor her, none of us were able to fix uh, the screen on her cell phone. You know how that is. Uh, It's an inconvenience. It's, It's disruptive. And so anyway, she took it to this place called You Break, I Fix. Now, the phone, uh, the broken phone, was not a surprise to them when she uh, brought it in. Uh, They didn't condemn her because the phone was broken. They didn't make her feel bad because the phone was broken. They didn't say you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Don't you know how careful you ought to be with your phone? As a matter of fact, they were glad to, to see her 
because um, uh, they're not in the, 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 the you broke your phone guilt trip business. They are in the phone fixing business. And so they took the old screen off and they replaced it with a new screen. And guess what? I don't know what they did. And I asked my wife, I said, what did they do with the new screen? She said, well, they kept it. I said, well, we really don't, I said, we really don't know what they did with it. But one thing we do know, you can't get to it. You know, wherever it is, we, we can't get to it. We don't know where it is, but we know we cannot go back and get the old screen. Because they put it someplace that's inaccessible to us. And so um, what they did, um, they, 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 they saw her coming. They were glad she came. They took the old screen off. They put it in a place that's inaccessible. They fixed the new screen, and now the phone oh, works perfectly. She broke it. They fixed it. And so this is kind of what Paul means when he says, as in Adam, all die. Yeah, yeah. All of us break our relationship with God. But in Christ... All shall be made alive because Jesus is in the life-fixing business. And contrary to what some people will tell you, if you bring a broken life to Jesus, he's not going to put a guilt trip on you. I wish I had some help. He's not going to make you feel bad because, in other words, he says, come unto me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And not only that, I'll help you with your life. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Watch me as I walk with you. For my yoke is easy and my burdens are light. As in Adam all died. If you break your relationship with God, you cannot fix it. And interesting enough, about this thing with her phone, when she had the broken screen, if you called her on it, she could talk to you. The phone seemed to work. Everything looked like it was in order. Everything uh, looked like it was functional. But if you got close enough, you could see that there was some damage. Is that not like some of us today? We are very functional. Come on, I wish I had some help. Oh, we look very good from a distance. Everything looks well. But if somebody happens to get close enough and turn you over on the other side, they would see that there's brokenness there. There's pain there. There's regret there. But I know somebody who's able to fix every broken place and to heal us from all of our brokenness. As in Adam, all die. But when we bring our brokenness to Jesus Christ, he's in the life repair business. Somebody ought to shout right there. Doesn't matter how broken it is. Doesn't matter how busted up it is. How cracked up it is. Jesus can fix it. Secondly, for your worksheets, the first Adam produced death. And the second Adam conquered death. The Bible describes the consequences of sin as death. Death in this context is best described as, and you've heard the idiom, um, I'm in a pickle. It, the de death is the being in the proverbial between a rock and a hard place. Death is not merely the prelude to a funeral. A death is the platform for an unfulfilled life. Death is this. It's having hands, but it's like having handcuffs on them. Death is having a body, but it's like the body is locked behind bars. 
death is the crippling consequences of drugs and alcohol and smoking and excessive eating and risky living. Death is what happens when we are in a relationship with the wrong person at the wrong time and for the wrong reasons. Death uh, is destructive. Now, the death that Paul is describing, you're not in a cemetery. There has not been a funeral, but there has been an autopsy. And the coroner's report reads dead due to a toxic exposure to sin. If you hang around sin long enough, if you dibble and dabble in it long enough, if you're in and out of it long enough, eventually you're going to die. It all began, the Bible says, when Adam ate the fruit that God commanded him not to eat. Because it seemed like a good idea at the time. It seemed like it was harmless. It seemed that it was going to be very easy to manage. It caught some people, but it won't catch me. And that is the illusion of sin. It may feel like fun, but the Bible says there's a way that seems right unto man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. Any Bible students in the house? You may be having the time of your life right now, but it's not going to end up right now. You may be enjoying yourself, but if you are disobeying God, it's only a matter of time before something in you or something around you or somebody connected to you dies in some way or another. Sometimes the death is the death of something you've been building for years. Sometimes the death is a valuable relationship that you treasure. Sometimes the death is an opportunity that you have been waiting all your life in order to seize. The Bible says uh, there's a way that seems right unto man. And if we dibble and dabble long enough, something around us or in us or because of us is going to die. Catches up with us, doesn't it? For the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. And the thing is, we cannot undo death. We cannot correct the spiritual damage that we do. And see, but what Adam broke, Jesus corrected. His death and his resurrection, I wish I had somebody who's with corrected the consequences of every sinful thought, every sinful attitude, and every sinful deed. In other words, when Jesus was on the cross, he did what the typewriter industry did when, it, when they finally put in. You all remember the old typewriters? And it used to be just a ribbon there, just ink that would come out, no way to correct your mistakes. Then they came up with something called correctotype. I wish I had. Yeah, correct. And in other words, had a little white thing up at the type. And when you could use that to, to cover over and to, and, to, and to correct the mistakes. But it even got even better when they moved from the typewriter to the word processor. Because when you had the old typewriter, if you look close enough, you could still see the evidence that something here is covered up. But when you move to the word processor, I wish I had some help. You could type something in, but you had the capacity with a delete key, with a backspace key, with a cut and paste to get rid of something and the evidence of his presence is no longer there. When Jesus died, his blood the Bible says washes away all of our sins. Look at me now. I'm not as good as I really am but the blood has washed me and has cleansed me. 
his blood. And so what Adam gave birth to, Jesus corrected and conquered on the cross. And finally, the first Adam was restricted. And the second Adam was resurrected. You see, the primary reason that we intentionally commit sin is because we convince ourselves that we are missing out on something. We convince ourselves that uh, we are restricted. We are, as my daughter says, we're on, on lockdown around here. Yeah, ain't no freedom down here. You, you all got me in prison. That's what we feel like when um, we are told not to disobey God. And we convince ourselves, somebody say convince ourselves, that we would be more accepted if we do certain things. Or we convince ourselves that we would be m more triumphant if we did certain things. And that the only way to win is to cheat and to be dishonest. And we want to prove to ourselves sometimes that we have the guts. I wish I had some. Sometimes it's not that we necessarily want to do it, but we want to prove that we're not a punk, that we're not scared, that we have the, 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 we have the guts to do it. We don't want people looking at us like we're a wimp and that, that, that we don't have any backbone and we talk ourselves into doing what God has told us not to do. And we intentionally sin. Because we do not like what others have done to us. And we determine in ourselves that we're going to get them back. And in the words of the gladiator, I will have my revenge either in this life or in the life to come. We must have our revenge. We intentionally sin because we do not like the pain associated with forgiving others. If forgiveness was easy and comfortable, we would not mind forgiving, but forgiveness is hard. And sometimes forgiveness is painful. And we don't like the pain associated. We don't like the difficulty um, associated with self-discipline. And so we take another way out that is a cheating way, that is a shortcut. Um, we, and, and then we don't like the courage required to maintain our character. Yet yeah, we could maintain it, but it's going to require uh, the discomfortable presence of sustained courage. And, and we don't like the discomfort of summoning that courage to stand in the presence of all the tests and trials that come with conforming with what? Society. And let me tell you something. I told my wife last night, as we were watching television, we were looking at what was on television. You can't watch television now without hearing somebody 
somebody cuss without hearing somebody do something crazy. Everything's crazy. And all the way to sell a television program, it's got to be wild. It's got to be crazy. It's got to be off the map. It's got to push the envelope. It's got to be somewhat immoral, illegal. But let me tell you one thing. The Bible tells us and the Bible warns us that there's a way that we ought to live our lives that God is expecting of us. And, and, I'm, and I'm trying to tell us today that it's going to take courage. It takes courage to maintain the character. We sin because we convince ourselves that we must have our say. Even if our say is ridiculously hurtful to other people. We sin because we decide that we must free ourselves from these ridiculous restrictions. See, before sin ever becomes an activity, it is an attitude. It is a mindset. Yeah, sin is not just the issue of what somebody is doing with their hands. Sin is an issue of what's going on in my heart before it ever gets to my hands and my feet and my lips. It has already been present in my heart. That's why Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Can I get a witness? Can you identify with that? That the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? It is beyond cure. I can identify with that. I have personally been in situations where I was doing the wrong thing physically, but in my mind I was saying this was wrong. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in my mind, in my heart? I was telling myself while concurrent with doing the activity, concurrent with being involved, while I was doing it, I was telling myself, you ought not be doing this. But the heart is deceitful. Because on the one side, it'll tell you to go ahead and do it. And then on the other side, it'll tell you that you ought not be doing this. Uh, and, and the truth is, whenever you got a schizophrenic heart, which is what all of us have, you cannot treat your own schizophrenia. You need, and I need, some help. See, as in Adam, all die. We follow the way of Adam. We follow his example. We follow his pattern. The only possible destination is death. But I have some good news. There is another Adam. And the death that Adam, the first Adam gave birth to, the second Adam conquered on the cross. And so I want to say, I want to be the first one to admit to you today. That living for God sometimes looks like a very restricted life. But in reality, it is a resurrection. Every time, you see, just as sin is an attitude, so is resurrection an attitude. Long before Jesus got up from the grave, he told his disciples, you know, he said, I'm going to be heading into a little trouble in Jerusalem. The chief priests and the scribes are going to arrest me. They're going to persecute me. They're going to try me. And then they're going to kill me. He said, they're going to bury me. He said, but in three days, 
I shall rise again. You've got to have a rise again mentality living on the inside of you. It is an attitude. And so this restricted way of thinking can become a way of life. But God wants you to have a resurrected mindset. You see, to not believe in the resurrection is to say that I don't believe in second chances. To not believe in the resurrection is to say, I don't believe in the possibility of transformation and renewal and repentance and divine pardon and deliverance. But when I say I believe in the resurrection, I'm saying I believe that God can take a life that was going nowhere fast, can take a life that was locked up behind poor decisions and bad choices. I believe God can take a life that their transcripts says uh, that they are a failure and their resume says that they have not accomplished anything I believe that God can take that same life that has been dwelling in darkness for three long days or three long months or three long years and God can raise us to life again As a matter of fact I believe it so much that I can declare that any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. You see, somebody might say, well, you've got a lot of failure. Well, all you got to say is that's right. You don't have to defend yourself. Say, all my righteousness is just as a filthy rag, but Christ. Somebody might say, well, you're weak. You don't have to defend yourself. Just go ahead and say, that's right. But his strength is made perfect in my weakness. Jesus Christ did not come to restrict us, but he came to set us free. Resurrection becomes the habit that forges the life of freedom that Christ came to bring to us. So I want to invite you and challenge you today to allow a resurrection to be a habitual part of your attitude. Let it be a part of your thinking, a part of your behavior, a part of your strategy for living, part of your exit planning, that you believe in resurrection. Let it be a part of your vision. Anticipate a bump in the road a bad turn, but also believe that God has the power to correct anything that goes wrong on your journey. Let it be a part of your vision statement. As a matter of fact, write out your own obituary and include a line that says, I believe in the resurrection and the life. Make that a part of how you think and how you live. You see, because before Jesus went to the cross, he embraced the mindset of resurrection. And the greatest corrective measure is the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to transform how we think and to deliver us from the destruction of self-inflicted death. Come on, stand on your feet, please.